0: Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the Mind Muscle Connection Podcast. Today, I have a very special guest back on for the second time, Greg Potter. So in case you aren't familiar with him, Greg attended the Inver- University of Leeds doing a PhD about circadian rhythms, sleep, nutrition, and metabolism. He's also the founder of Resilient Nutrition, which leverages cutting edge science to produce foods and supplements that make feeling and performing better, simple, and delicious. Greg, thanks for coming back on, man.
1: Pleasure, Jeff. Nice to speak to you again.
0: Yeah, always, always a good time. And, and uh, I, I got I, the last time we talked, we we really dialed in sleep. Um, And I got a lot of good feedback on that episode, just because I haven't really had too many episodes where I've just uh, specifically talked about sleep. So um, I had a lot of people that wanted you to get back on here. So like I told you off air, I just wanted to kind of briefly touch on, you know, since it's been a little while since we chatted, just maybe a general update on you, anything big that's happened in the last year and a half, two years or anything like that?
1: I have another nephew and another niece, so I suppose that's relatively big news. One of them arrived a couple of days ago, but otherwise in terms of Congrats. my work, I'm, thank you very much. I'm no longer a director at Resilient Nutrition, so I stepped down from that company about a year ago or so, and I am still working with various different companies, doing some coaching to people are interested in that, then they can send me a message via my website, which is gregpotterphd.com shameless self-plug.
0: Hey, you got, you got to do it, right? I mean, you know, this is, this is what we do for a living. And, um, obviously, you know, you're really smart and and I know you can help a lot of people. So, you know, I, I, I feel the same way though, whenever I'm trying to kind of talk about my coaching, you always just kind of feel bad bringing it up, but, uh, it's, it's, it's good. You know, more people need to know about it. Um, cool. So, uh, yeah. So, so again, still coaching things like that. Who, who is like, typically your like kind of clientele that you, that you, uh, would work with through coaching?
1: It's a real mixed bag, actually. So <laughs> over time it's evolved, initially, it was primarily strength and power athletes. When I did my undergrad, my master's, I coached 100 and 200 meter sprinters and I helped them with everything. So my undergrad and my master's were in exercise science and a lot of people don't realize this, but I fell in love with exercise first and certainly until my mid to late 20s, my knowledge of exercise science was substantially better than it was of nutrition or sleep or biological rhythms. Now I think I probably know a little bit more about biological rhythms and sleep, but hopefully my knowledge is relatively well balanced. But in that role as a coach, I helped them obviously with their training programs, help them with their nutrition, their sleep and so on. So it's relatively comprehensive coaching as it is now. But then over time I've worked with, various different types of clients so that ranges from ultra endurance athletes when I was at resilient nutrition we did a lot of work with people growing the ocean both the Atlantic and the Pacific I helped a lady named Pip Hare who sailed around the world single-handedly in the Vendee globe just over a year ago which is a really impressive feat of endurance Uh, and I have also worked with people with various different chronic health conditions and people who have just more regular physique or strength aspirations. And nowadays, quite a lot of the work that I do focuses on helping people with their sleep in particular. I get referred clients from a few different people, places such as a psychiatric clinic and some others. And so it's a very long-winded way of saying But my coaching really spans quite a wide range of different types of people of different ages too. the one group that I haven't really worked with is kids, but otherwise healthy, not healthy, young adults, old adults, aesthetically minded or focused just on chronic disease.
0: Awesome. Yeah. Just, just kind of a wide range and and every single one of those uh, people could benefit from probably improving their sleep as well too. So, uh, I, I do. Just out of curiosity, like, I you know, you kind of mentioned a few people that you worked with. I'm curious, what were some things that you, if, if you can share, like worked on and, and what are some things that are important for somebody that, you know, obviously not a lot of people are going to try to travel around the globe um, and, and whatnot. Uh, I, I think you said it was through rowing. I, I believe you said, right, with rowing or sailing or what was it? Rowing
1: and playfueling, yeah.
0: I don't think many people are going to do that but I'm just curious what were some things that uh you you know really had a focus on there and what would be of importance of somebody like uh, in, in that um you know avatar.
1: Yeah, it's it's a really interesting context. But there are a few things I think. One of them is just making sure that people turn up at the start line well rested. There's quite persuasive evidence showing that people who get more sleep before a period of inevitable sleep loss, perform better during the sleep loss. Some people refer to that as banking. I don't think people can really sleep more than is healthy for them as individuals. And I think for the most part, it's not really banking as much as it is just catching up on sleep that's been lost previously, but going through a period of sleep extension for several weeks before those types of events can really help. Another is just trying to make the sleeping conditions on board as conducive to healthy sleep as possible. And for example, noises coming from the ocean or coming from equipment can disrupt their sleep. The motion of the boat can disrupt sleep. Being In a period in which you're having a hard time digesting food, can also disrupt sleep. And it's really common too, because particularly in the context of rowing, where these people might be expending around 10,000 calories a day for much of the race, trying to force down food while cranking through energy at that rate is very difficult. And so they tend to experience a lot of digestive distress, lose a lot of weight, and so on. All of those things can impinge on sleep. And so what that manifests as is making sure that people have things like silicon earplugs on board to block out sounds that could otherwise disturb them. It's a bit of a double-edged sword just because they need to be responsive to the things that are going on. But at the same time, I think that's not too big a factor because the kinds of things that could really throw them off will inevitably wake them up. like capsizing or like really being thrown around in the middle of a storm. And then some others would be just having an iron mask, which isn't so relevant if the race is close to the equator. So the rowing, for instance, tends to be more or less along the equator, but something like the Vendee Globe is characterized by deviating quite far from it. So you go through quite large swings in the light-dark cycle. And in that case, Something like an eye mask is more helpful than it otherwise might be. And then otherwise, it's doing things nutritionally to help cope with the sleep loss. Supporting wakefulness and cognition and physical performance, but ideally without impairing sleep too much in doing so. Because, of course, you could just consume loads of stimulants and try and get by that way. But there's a smarter strategy and so some of the things that we've often implemented are things like consuming creatine monohydrate i don't recall if we spoke about that last time jeff but there's some interesting work showing that creatine monohydrate can help counter many of the negative effects of insufficient sleep and just as a tangent when i was at resilient nutrition i actually formulated a product named switch on which to my knowledge was the first nutrition product designed to offset many of the negative effects of disrupted sleep and one of its core ingredients was creatine and then also using regular low dose caffeine so instead of consuming say three to six milligrams of caffeine per kilogram of body weight in a single dose as somebody might before many types of athletic events whether that's you competing in a team sport or an individual sport in that context when you're trying to sustain your performance around the clock against the backdrop of insufficient sleep, having multiple doses of of something like 30 to 50 milligrams of caffeine tends to better sustain cognition than having larger, wider space doses of caffeine. So I'll pause there, but those are some of the things that you can do to, to help thrive in those circumstances.
0: Yeah, all, all really like super interesting stuff. There's a, there's a few things in there that I wanted to kind of hit on. So first was so, so interesting there that you said the sleep extension. So if you are going to if you know you're going to have a period of time or maybe you are going to be um, a little bit more sleep deprived, having that period of time beforehand to, you know, kind of extend your, your sleep, you know, get more sleep is going to be helpful there with that. How, how many hours uh, can you expect
1: somebody in this situation to, to sleep? It's difficult to know exactly. We did actually try and track sleep in some of those events. So somebody like Pip very rarely got more than about four and a half hours of sleep per night. One of the issues, of course, is that if you give someone a wearable and you use the wearable data as a proxy of their sleep, the wearables are designed to score sleep in people with relatively normal sleep, sleeping in quite still environments and so they don't tend to perform so well if for instance if for instance somebody has a sleep related movement disorder so if if somebody has restless leg syndrome say and during their sleep they flail their limbs around while they're fast asleep they they might end up being as as being awake during those episodes so for somebody like pip where the environment is moving the boat around a lot while she's trying to nap she might well be scored as being awake when she is in fact asleep. so i think in those circumstances using self-reported data was actually really helpful and we have tried to do that in in some instances but for her i think and i would have to look back at the data but i think her her mean sleep duration was scored as probably being under four hours per night The rowers, they tend to get more sleep than that. So I mentioned earlier that they more or less follow the equator. It's not so technical in that for somebody who's sailing around the planet, there's a lot going on in terms of taking care of equipment and all of these different tasks that need doing. It's an incredibly skilled thing to do. With rowing, if you're rowing with another person, especially because if you look, for instance, at the... TWAC, the Talisker Whiskey Atlantic Challenge, which is the row across the Atlantic that many people do, then there are people who will do ocean rowing single handedly, but more people will do it in crews of two people or four people and so on. And so what that means is that you tend to row in shifts and people have experimented with trying to find what an appropriate shift schedule is. I'm sure it depends on factors such as chronotype and so on, but basically because there are two people you can alternate, you can get more total sleep. And actually I think even for the person who's rowing single-handedly, depending on things such as currents, I think for performance people sometimes underestimate how much sleep is ideal for their performance because when they get that little bit more sleep they might lose a bit of time on the oars but the time that they do spend on the oars is that much better and also they might be less likely to say pick up infections or musculoskeletal problems
0: yeah no right it's it's one of those tricky things where it's like yeah you're that's time that you could be rowing or or whatnot but at the same time it's like if you do get that sleep, you're going to be more uh, efficient and effective when you are rowing, which, which like you said, and then you look at the thing like, you know, infection, stuff like that too. Yeah. I mean, that's something that could take you out of the race altogether. I'm assuming one thing I didn't ask you is how long, how long do these typically take?
1: So Vendee globe is typically over a hundred days wow. really depends heavily on conditions and then rowing. It depends on things like the direction that you go across the ocean. It's much harder going from, Say America to the Canary Islands and vice versa. But in the case of the Talisker whiskey, if it's a two man crew, if you do that under 40 days, then you've accomplished something that's very impressive. Yeah. So we're talking about north of a month normally. And in something like the Vonday, I'm talking about probably north of three months for most people.
0: Yeah. Okay. Yeah. That's because uh, I, I didn't know if it was a, you know, like you said, a month thing or multiple months. So it can be upwards of, like you said, three months or so uh, potentially there. So, so a long, a long time of, of not getting good sleep. And then one other thing you mentioned earlier was the creatine aspect. I'm curious to hear a little bit more about that. Um, I, obviously I'm sure you still are going to tell people, Hey, like we want to make sure we get seven to eight hours, you know, all the good sleep, sleep habits that, that you always talk about. But, um, I'm curious to hear when that, you know, when adding in creatine is uh, applicable and, and what kind of some things maybe that you would, uh, and tell people around that
1: yeah the way that i tend to implement it is having people go through sleep extension ideally for at least two weeks before they arrive at the starting line and then load creatine having not taken it for several months in the five days or so before they begin and there are a few reasons for that If you look at the research on creatine consumption and how it affects people during either sleep restriction, so just not getting enough sleep or getting some sleep, or sleep deprivation, which is the complete absence of sleep, then they've tended to use creatine loading protocols, typically something like five grams a day, four times a day. Maybe you have three meals and a snack and you just take five grams of creatine with each of those five days. And then comes the period of insufficient sleep. And then they compare that to a placebo. So based on that research that's been done so far, I tend to favor that type of approach. We don't really know what's optimal in that context. Comparisons of different creatine loading strategies just haven't been done. What I'll say is that it's harder to bump up your brain creatine stores than it is your intramuscular ones. And some of the work that's looked at the effects of creatine on responses to insufficient sleep Has included non human animals such as rodents, and their brain creatine stores are more responsive to creatine loading than ours are. So, in a human, I'm guessing, based on the data that I've seen, creatine loading might bump brain creatine stores by something like 10%. So, I don't think it's ever going to have a dramatic effect, but I do think that the effect is there based on the research that I've seen. We might find that it's possible to boost creatine stores in the brain more in the future either using different loading strategies or using some related supplements guanadino acetic acid being one of those safety profile of that is dubious so i certainly wouldn't recommend it but it's very interesting so that's typically the approach that i'll have them take and then during the event i'll just have them take a, a relatively typical maintenance dose but towards the higher end of What somebody might normally consume. For most people, for maintenance, three to five grams is fine. That will do the trick. That will keep your stores topped up. And in these contexts, I might bump that up to about 10 grams or so. The issue with creatine is just that for some people, it can cause some gastrointestinal distress. It has some osmotic properties, it tends to draw water into the digestive tract, and that can lead to some discomfort. So, you have to play around to see what's right for the individual. But that type of strategy tends to work. And in terms of the mechanisms by which creatine is thought to exert these protective effects in this sleep deprived context, if you think about caffeine, then the main way by which it reduces sleepiness is by acting as an adenosine receptor antagonist. So, the longer that you've been awake, the greater the accumulation of adenosine and ATP in the extracellular spaces in the brain, so the spaces between cells in the brain. And these promote sleep. So it's a very simple and elegant mechanism when you think about it. The longer that you've been awake, the more sleepy you tend to be. With creatine, whereas caffeine blocks the interaction of those sleep promoting chemicals with their receptors. creatine stops them accumulating as much, and it does so basically by by recycling these metabolites at a higher rate. And so if you think about this as being a bit like hearing a sound, say, in the case of caffeine, it's like sticking your fingers in your ears. So, that you can't hear the sound. In the case of creatine, it's like the sound itself is quieter. So, it could be that the two are complementary and that hasn't really been looked at. It's been looked at in the context of musculoskeletal performance and they certainly don't seem to be complementary in, in that context. But regarding the brain and wakefulness, we don't really know yet. So, it could be that that's a really nice combination. I wouldn't necessarily recommend consuming mega dose of both and instead the strategy that tends to take is that creatine loading approach supplemented with with small regular dose of caffeine that tends to work really well in my experience and then finally in terms of the actual effects that have been shown that type of creatine loading has been shown to both help preserve various different aspects of cognition so things like Minimizing attentional lapses. And those are the kind of lapses that could cause somebody to do something like crash while they're driving a car after a night of two hours of sleep. It's also been shown to help with some more complex aspects of cognition. So, some measures of executive function, which is your ability to plan tasks, carry them out, modify what you're doing according to how you're progressing in those tasks. And then it's been shown to help with coordination. There's been some work on rugby players showing that creatine helps preserve the accuracy of passing a rugby ball after sleep loss. And caffeine does too, but creatine had more favorable effects on the endocrine system. Caffeine tends to increase stress hormones and creatine seemed to possibly help better preserve testosterone levels, whereas testosterone dropped more in the sleep loss condition when people consume caffeine and then there, there might be some other positive effects too so things like maintained balance during tasks that, that challenge people to stand on one leg that type of thing so it's not well researched yet and the evidence to date has its shortcomings but it's all very interesting it points in the same direction and mechanistically it makes sense
0: Yeah, absolutely, and and creatine. Yeah, from my understanding, again, it's like obviously there's a ton of research in terms of it being great for like uh, strength and um, you know muscle development and things like that. But you know the brain that there's a lot of interesting research on that. And from my understanding, like you said, it's just not as much research on it. And again, the dosage I'm assuming is kind of in question as well too in terms of how much you need to for it to actually have like uh, cognitive effects and things like that. So my question on that, and if if I said anything wrong there, please correct me also. But uh, is this, would this be something that you would recommend to people that again, like I know we're always going to tell people, Hey, like we really need to make sure we try to improve our sleep as best as we can. But for people that just maybe they work overnight or something like that, or um, they just, for them, like maybe even like during a period of time when um, you have a newborn or something like that, would this be something that you would recommend to like general gen, gen uh, general population clients as well too?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. and And the example of parents of newborns is the perfect one. And I I always end up recommending it to my friends and family when they're in that particular unenviable position. But as you say, creatine has a huge list of upsides in terms of its effects on many different bodily systems. So it's been very well demonstrated to improve strength, power adaptations to training, including muscle hypertrophy doesn't increase those capacities or dimensions in the absence of training but it does supplement training it also seems to be good for some measure of metabolic health and that shouldn't be surprising if in the absence of any other changes something increase somebody's muscle mass then you would expect that to help with things like glucose control and creatine does seem to help a little bit with that it can help with hydration, which might be very relevant if somebody is trying to do something in very hot conditions. It seems to be very good for brain health in general, as you alluded to. So, there's lots of work looking at things like whether it helps protect brain cells during various different insults, such as models of concussion. And people are also interested in using it in the case of various different neurodegenerative diseases, like Parkinson's. And the studies looking at those illnesses, tend to use very high doses. There's been research using upwards of 30 grams per day for upwards of a year, showing that creatine is safe. And on that subject, creatine is incredibly safe. It's been so well-researched over time. Pretty much the only side effect that most people are likely to experience is a small increase in body mass, which just reflects an increase in fat-free mass, which is like the best side effect ever. The only instance that that just gives me a tiny bit of pause in recommending it and i might change my mind about this i really haven't made up my mind because there's just not much research on it and if anything the research so far actually suggests it might be beneficial is in bipolar disorder or in mania because if creatine does actually slightly reduce sleep duration and there's some research suggesting that might be the case so there was this study by marcus dvorak and Rudy Bashir a few years ago, which was fascinating. And They basically added creatine monohydrate to the chow of rats for several weeks, and they found that afterwards their brain phosphocreatine stores increased, brain adenosine levels were lower, the rats slept less, they had less deep, deep sleep, they had less deep sleep, and they also responded less to sleep deprivation because what you tend to see is that if you completely deprive an animal of sleep, you see rebound sleep afterwards. It's like pulling on an elastic band. It bounces back such that you would expect to sleep more after a night of sleep deprivation, of course, than you normally would. Not twice as much as you normally would, but you would sleep more and you'd have more deep sleep in particular, and the depth of your deep sleep would be deeper. But those changes were less pronounced after creatine supplementation which jives with the idea that it's affecting that creating that sleep homeostasis process that I mentioned earlier, the idea that it's actually reducing how much sleep an animal needs. That's what seems to be the case here. In bipolar, when somebody swings from a bout of depression to mania, they often sleep much less than normal. And I just wonder if for some people who experience mania, creatine might be ill-advised because it it could dispose them to those manic episodes in the same way that while cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia can be really helpful for people who have insomnia that's comorbid with depression for people who have insomnia but have bipolar disorder if they're going through a period of sleep restriction as part of their cognitive behavioral therapy you've got to be really careful with that because if you shorten their time in bed too much, then they might end up going into a bout of mania. So that's that's pretty much the only condition outside of genetic conditions that affect creatine metabolism that would give me pause before recommending creatine.
0: So it sounds like what you said there was the, it it almost... Like in the in the studies, the sleep duration will go down, but that's not necessarily a, a bad thing. It's like the need for sleep goes down a little bit uh if you if you take it regularly. And this is would this be considered with that three to five grams, or do we not like
1: know what the, the dosage would be on that? That's my interpretation. And and the reason I say that is in part because if you look at research on sleep restriction, even if it's mild sleep restriction restriction, if it's sustained over time, so Let's say, Jeff, that you normally have eight hours of bed per night. And when you give yourself that much time in bed, you get seven hours of sleep and you feel great. If we restricted that to seven hours in bed, you'd get less than seven hours of sleep per night. And over time, that would likely catch up with you. People differ in how they respond to sleep restriction. Some people are in some ways quite resilient against it, but in other ways not. Other people just unfortunately get hit hard by it pretty much across the board but let's say that you're in the middle in terms of how you respond to it that type of regular insufficient sleep is going to negatively affect many aspects of your metabolism cardiovascular health cognition brain health and so on what's interesting about creatine is that if it does indeed affect sleep and reduces it and reduces deep sleep, which we would expect based on these mechanisms, when you look at all those things that I just mentioned, metabolic health, cardiovascular health, brain health, creatine either has neutral effects or positive effects on all of those. And so given that it seems to be affecting sleep homeostasis specifically, so that accumulation of adenosine that's involved in regulating the total amount of sleep that somebody gets over time, to me it seems to actually be reducing sleep need somewhat. I don't think the effect is dramatic, but I think it probably is there. We definitely need more research on this and it it might make some people laugh to now hear me say that there hasn't actually been any published research showing that creatine dramatically reduces sleep in humans. But my understanding, having, having spoken to one of the authors that did that research on rats, is that they followed followed it up with an experiment on humans that hasn't yet been published, that found the same thing in humans but to a lesser extent, which is exactly what you would expect based on what I said about differences in how creatine supplementation affects brain creatine stores.
0: Yeah, that's so. So again, like you said, it's it's you know kind of what you've taken from the data. It's like again, nothing in, in humans yet, but a lot of uh, things that would make you think that it that it does do that. And I, I feel like anecdotally, I. I take creatine regularly and, um, and this is going to maybe lead into my next kind of question here on, on sleep specifically, but I do find that, you know, anything over, I feel like seven ish to eight ish hours. I, I just, I, I can't sleep at, ha- like I got to get up. I, I just can't stay asleep and I feel good on, you know, seven ish, uh, maybe a little bit more than that. Whereas, um, and, and so I wonder, you know, if that is potentially playing a role in that. Now, I do really try to focus on my sleep and I, you know, really try to prioritize that. Um, so I think that definitely helps as well, too. So just anecdotally, I could I could see where that could be playing a role. Um, but off of that, you know, I do find that uh, my fiance, she tends to need maybe a little bit more sleep. She does not take creatine. But this le- leads me to my question. Um, and I know she had shown me this like TikTok one time of like, oh, hey, women need more sleep than than men. Is that so I don't know if there's anything you want to hit on with what I said about the creatine, but is that true, or is that just something that again, you know, it's a TikTok person said it and it just took off?
1: Yes, yeah, so if you look at differences between sleep duration between men and women, there is a very small difference, such that women do sleep slightly longer than men on average, slightly, and at a given age, their sleep tends to. Be earlier once they are physically mature. Because if you look at sleep timing, then if you go from newborn to the end of adolescence, then sleep gets later and later. And then from the end of adolescence to the grave, sleep basically gets earlier and earlier. And because females mature physically slightly faster than males, they end puberty earlier, which is one of the reasons why they don't end up as tall. And then from that point on, they're getting earlier for slightly longer, hence their sleep is slightly longer. And it's actually thought to be a a sexual selection thing that if you look across history, interesting, there's some work on this recently, then it seems going by things like fossil remains and whatnot, that men and women who are together on average, the age gap is roughly seven years in many different parts of the world across time. And so (laughs) given that, women tend to be slightly earlier at a given age, it makes sense that <laughs> they, they end up with slightly older men who have had longer to get earlier and then their sleep roughly aligns in terms of its timing. So tangent. But yes, there, there is that small difference. However, people do vary substantially in their sleep needs and that is true within a sex and within an age group and so if you for instance jeff feel that you're fine on six hours of sleep per night just as an example there'll be somebody else exactly the same age as you also male who will feel like he needs nine and a half hours per night and if he gets less than that and then he starts to suffer and i don't think that your ability to cope with sleep loss biologically improves when it's tested. If anything, it actually might get slightly worse. People might develop coping strategies because they know how the sleep loss affects them. And that's very relevant in the context of something like rowing in an ocean or sailing around the world. But biologically, sleep loss continues to deteriorate people's bodies. Even if, they've got this background of sleep loss if anything it might I think it might deteriorate them more because their resilience to baseline will be compromised and then finally just going back to what you said about creatine your personal experience drives it my own so I find that when I take it I sleep slightly less my sleep is slightly lighter so I'm slightly more likely to wake up and my sleep doesn't rebound nearly as much so for example a couple of weeks ago I went to a wedding and had three nights of not getting that much sleep one of the nights probably had four hours of sleep and historically if i had that background of insufficient sleep then the night following when i gave myself a long sleep opportunity i'd be able to sleep well over 11 hours when i've been taking creatine my sleep duration is barely different it, it might be up to 45 minutes longer than baseline but it really isn't very different and maybe that's a placebo effect i don't know but i suspect it isn't
0: yeah that's that's super interesting so so again it yeah it sounds like again that can be something that you, obviously there's a ton of benefits you know outside of this but that could just be a, a potential added benefit and and the cool thing with creatine is it's relatively inexpensive too and i'm assuming we're talking mono creatine monohydrate uh as well too when we when we Boys. talk yeah um but I don't know if you've noticed this, but I do find that in the last, and this kind of is on par with everything else in the world. But I do feel like in the last six months to a year, creatine prices have gone up pretty substantially from what they were before. And I don't know if, if that just has to do again with the, the way the market is in general, or if you know more and more people are finding out, you know, kind of these just more overall health benefits of, of creatine.
1: Yeah, I don't know how much of it is demand driven, but I know just given my involvement with resilient nutrition that the raw material cost of creatine monohydrate has increased substantially in the last couple of years, which is true of most things. I don't know how it's changed relative to the average price of similar goods because the price of certain items have swung wildly and others haven't moved around quite so much. I don't know what's the case of creatine, but yeah, it is a good bit more expensive than it used to be. However, it's still cheap compared to most supplements. And in terms of the demonstrated benefits of creatine – I think they're pretty much second to none. It always cracks me up to see people who are frankly obsessed with longevity get very excited about certain thought-to-be longevity-promoting supplements that cost $100 per two-week supply. <laughs> and they're not not—they're not doing decent exercise training programs, and they're not taking creatine. And I just think you've just got this the wrong way around, mate.
0: And then it, usually it's probably uh, the reply is wasn't well, creatine bad for you? Doesn't it do you know whatever? <laughs> I don't I, oh, I don't yeah, know yeah,
1: what. Yeah. I, 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 the kidneys or something. Yeah,
0: yeah. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, is there is there any any people that you would potentially like say hey you're at a higher need of of creatine? Like you're somebody that you know these are some c- certain things that I would look out for, and you might need have a, a higher need for it than
1: than somebody else. Yeah, vegans, for the most part. Just because if you look at the creatine content of foods and the foods that are richest in creatine tend to be meats and fish so things like beef and various different fish are quite high in creatine and somebody like me who eats quite a lot of those items will consume several grams of creatine per day just by way of diet so i'm going to probably respond less to it than many people would but for vegans in particular, vegetarians less so, but probably this is relevant to them too. They just won't consume as much dietary creatine. And so they're more likely to benefit from it. There might also be people who will turn over their creatine store slightly faster than others. So, if for instance, somebody was doing heroic volumes of exercise, especially if they were consuming a plant based diet. And then also, I think that there might be certain health conditions that could have a similar effect, or otherwise just indicate a greater need for creatine, or that people are more likely to benefit from creatine supplementation. So one of the things we didn't touch on earlier, for instance, is, is treatment-resistant depression, and depression is really widespread now, and some people they get given pretty typical treatments for depression. So in the case of pharmaceuticals, that might be SSRI, selective serotonin reuptake inhibitors. It might be monoamine oxidase inhibitors, and they might not respond to them. And then they try a different drug, and they don't respond to that either. Interestingly, there's some work showing that if you give these people creatine monohydrate, it boosts their mood when they haven't responded to these other interventions. And so I certainly think that there might be clinical conditions where creatine needs are substantially higher than they otherwise would be. there there might also be some additional health conditions too i'm just thinking about methylation states and whatnot but i don't think it's worth going there but creatine has some involvement in methylation pathways and so it can be implicated in things like whether somebody's homocysteine level is in the normal range which might then have some influence on cardiovascular health but i'll pause there so i think for the most part vegans secondarily vegetarians. And then it could be that certain health conditions increase creativity needs too. Awesome.
0: Yeah. And I know that there, I'm sure there will be a lot more research coming out here on like its effects on like brain health and cognitive function and things like that. Um As you know, again, you know, I'm sure a lot of people are, are researching that. So um, I'm sure we'll be able to give, you know, better like strategies in terms of like dosage and stuff like that in the, in the near future.
1: Yeah. Things crossed.
0: <laughs> yeah, right. Fing- fingers crossed. Cool. Well, I uh, didn't plan on talking about creatine today, but I thought that was <laughs> super interesting and I wanted to dive into that. I do have one more question on your rower, but I do want to say that to the end because that's more of a uh, selfish question. And I feel like it would just be something that I'm just curious and that probably wouldn't, uh, impact the audience at all. So what I want to do is spend a little bit of time here talking about circadian rhythm and, uh, meal timing. You know, I think it's this concept of, uh, I think it's chrononutrition, I think is, is kind of how you would talk about it. So maybe if you want to briefly touch on like circadian rhythm and then just kind of what we know about it as of now, in terms of like the, the research and, and uh, stuff like that, uh, in, in regards to like meal timing.
1: Sure. Okay. So you're basically asking for the whistle stop tour of chrononutrition. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I know. I <laughs> okay so you use the word circadian rhythm there people are probably familiar with these but circadian means roughly 24 hours and the idea is that we have these rhythmic changes in our bodies roughly every 24 hours and the purpose of those is to optimize our bodies for different processes at different times of day. because if our bodies try to do everything all at once it would be hard to do anything well. It would be enormously energetically costly too. So if you think, for instance, of trying to build things up, so there might be new proteins in skeletal muscle or break things down, so that might be recycling dysfunctional proteins in muscle, it makes sense to separate those in time. And circadian rhythms help with that. And every cell in your body, as far as we know, has its own molecular clock That separates the timing of various different cellular processes and what we need therefore is a way of keeping all of these different biological clocks in time with each other and the circadian system that does this is this hierarchy of clocks and there's a master clock in the brain it's called the suprachiasmatic nucleus that is primarily in charge of this coordination It's mostly responsive to the light-dark cycle by way of the eyes. And that's why when you see light and the type of light that you see at different times of day are very important in synchronizing your clocks with the world around you each day. However, there are other factors that will affect the timing of clocks in different cells in your body. And all of the cells outside of that master clock are called peripheral clocks. And these seem to be somewhat responsive to physical activity as well. And some of them seem to respond somewhat to when we consume foods and drinks, in particular, specific constituents of food, foods, and drinks. And so what we can do is we can use an understanding of when our body is optimized for different processes in conjunction with how the foods and drinks that we consume affects these clocks to improve our health and our performance, potentially too. And so regarding the former. If you look, for instance, at oral glucose tolerance or how well your body disposes of the glucose and the carbohydrates that you consume, it's about 17% higher in the biological morning, so at roughly 8 a.m., than it is in the biological evening at roughly 8 p.m., suggesting that if we front load our carbohydrate intake within a 24-hour day, that might help us better control our blood sugar. Similarly, various different aspects of immune function seem to be optimized during the daytime and that makes sense because when we're up and physically active we're interacting with our environments in ways that are going to expose us to lots of pathogens by way of things like the foods that we eat the air that we breathe and so on and if we take that information about the fact that our bodies are primed to effectively digest and metabolize foods during the daytime and in particular the first half of the day Then we can start to build nutrition interventions around that knowledge. And this introduces time restricted eating, which I'm sure people are familiar with. Time restricted feeding is also used, but in my mind, that refers to these types of interventions in non human animals because animals feed, whereas we tend to refer to ourselves as eating. And to me, time restricted eating is only consuming calorie containing items within a period of up to 12 hours each day so if you used a 12 hour eating window then you might start your first calories of the day at say 7am and you might finish your final calories of the day at 7pm and if you look across different studies then it's clear that time restricted eating can exert some health benefits and for most people there's a sweet spot Between about an eight hour eating window and a 10 hour eating window, if they're interested in their general health. And so, when people implement an eight to 10 hour eating window for several weeks, they tend to see improvements in things like their fasting blood sugar, their blood pressure. They tend to lose a small amount of weight, which isn't due to any magical effects on the circadian system. It's more actually due to the fact that they seem to be consuming slightly less food. And that is related to improved appetite control. And they might experience some other modest health benefits too. What's happened over time is that people have tried to drill down into time-restricted eating and work out whether different time-restricted eating interventions are better than others. And my interpretation, and I'm speaking very broad terms here, I'm not getting into the specifics of any one study, is that if anything... Early time-restricted eating leads to slightly greater benefits for most people than later time-restricted eating does. And when I say early time-restricted eating, that hasn't really been operationalized in a way that people have achieved consensus on in the scientific community. But to me, early time-restricted eating would be finishing your final calories of the day by at least five hours before you fall asleep. So, if you fall asleep at 11 p.m., that would be finishing your final calories by 6 p.m. And you might start your eating window at 9 a.m. So, that'd be a nine hour eating window. That's not particularly early. Most of the work that's looked at early time restricted eating is used slightly harder to enact interventions than that. So, for example, eating between, say, 8 a.m. and 3 p.m that's been used by several studies labs such as courtney peterson's pennington and when people use early time restricted eating relative to later time restricted eating that there does seem to be a a modest advantage in terms of weight loss which i think is probably mostly due to the fact that when people use early time restricted eating they feel less hungry, and their hunger swings less over the course of the day, which I think is counterintuitive because certainly I would have expected it to swing more because I'm going longer without food. And a lot of people experience a, a peak in appetite at around 8 p.m. and that's actually driven by the biological clock. So it seems that early time restricted eating can then train appetite rhythms to keep them more even keel over time, which is really interesting. There might be some other benefits too. So, some of the early time restricted eating work has shown things like quite a dramatic drop in blood pressure, especially in the morning. It hasn't really been looked at around the clock, but it's there in the morning. So, if your blood pressure is raised, then this might be a really helpful intervention for you. I also think that it's having some benefits that are independent of any effects on metabolism per se. And I think those benefits are driven by the fact that we tend to consume certain items at certain times of day. For a lot of people, the unhealthy, in air quotes, foods and drinks that they consume, they consume in the evening while watching TV sat on the sofa. That's when they have their two glasses of wine, their ice cream, their crisps. That's not the right word for you Americans, sorry. (laughs) (laughs) But because early time-restricted eating reduces intake At that time of day, I think people end up selectively reducing their intake of of some of those less healthy items. So I, I think it's also acting by affecting diet quality as well. The research on that is far from consistent right now. Some have found some modest positive effects on food choices. Others have found no measurable effects. But I think that on average for most people, there's probably a small positive effect there. So I'll pause, but just bear in mind that what I've said there applies to the general population. I'm not speaking about physique athletes specifically, because if, for instance, you're going through a, a massing phase in which you're trying to accumulate as much fat-free mass as you can as quickly as possible, I'm not saying that you should be using early-time restricted eating. I absolutely don't think it should be. And also, the benefits that are born of early-time restricted eating don't apply to everyone. It's likely most helpful for certain people, in particular for people with certain chronic cardiometabolic health conditions, metabolic syndrome, obesity, overweight, hypertension, those types of issues. And there are some people for whom I think it's actually probably contraindicated. So let's say, for instance, that you are a 35 year old female. You're already quite lean. Your BMI is 20. Let's say you've got a background of doing large volumes of exercise and in particular endurance exercise and you you've occasionally lost your cycle previously now you're trying to get pregnant i don't think that time restricted eating is for you so i'll pause there but that that was that was my attempt at the whistle stop tour
0: no, that was that was actually really good. Uh, I, I threw a lot at you there, and and you uh, pretty much hit on everything I wanted you to there. So so I, I applaud you for that. And I what I liked specifically about what you said was towards the end there too, where you did specifically say, "Hey, like there are still going to be certain situations where this isn't going to be great for everybody, right? Like we still need to kind of we we can't lose sight of, of the big picture, right? So like you said, somebody that is trying to, you know, like you said, gain weight uh, if they're trying to mass or something like that, like eating, you know, whatever it may be, three to four thousand calories in that short time span is probably not it's going to be hard to do, right? And then you're going to run into, you know, GI distress, digestion issues, I'm sure. Um, but also even the person too that you said, if they are somebody that's already relatively lean, trying to potentially get pregnant, doing all these things, and they're, they're, you know, you're, they're going to be somebody in that kind of low energy availability state. And for them, you know, you, you're saying probably not going to be great. So anybody that is specifically not trying to be in that low energy availability state, probably going to be somebody that time-restricted eating isn't going to be um, the best for,
1: Yeah. Yeah. I agree with that. And I'll mention a couple of things. So one is that ironically, there are some people for whom time-restricted eating will improve their fertility. So you take somebody who's overweight or obese at baseline, if they lose a bit of weight because they end up eating less when they implement time-restricted eating, then you're probably going to see improvements in the endocrine status. You might see their sexual function function improves. And you might see that in men, for instance, their, their sperm count or morphology improves. Not lots of research on that or anything, but if their general health is improving, then their reproductive health will probably follow. Another thing that I'll mention is that I think even given those caveats that I mentioned, this is not something that's for everyone. I think there are some principles from chronic nutrition that, that do actually apply pretty much across the board. And so I mentioned, for instance, that glucose tolerance tends to be higher in the morning. I think most people certainly on days when they're not doing strenuous exercise, will benefit from front-loading their carbohydrate intake within the day. And there's quite a lot of research showing beneficial effects of that type of strategy now. Again, it tends to be on people with not particularly good cardiometabolic health, but I think that for most people, those benefits are there. There is some interesting work looking at high glycemic, low carbohydrate before sleep, showing some positive effects on sleep in athletes post-exercise and also in healthy normal people but i think that there are plenty of things that you can do to improve your sleep other than consuming a giant bowl of white rice shortly before sleep and so i would still nudge people into front-loading the carbohydrate intake within the day lipid tolerance probably does vary over the course of the day too there's not as much research on that though one point that i want to make is that i do think that people should try and distribute their protein intakes relatively evenly across the day and there might be reason to think that a slightly uneven distribution is optimal some people think that it's arguably best to have the largest boluses of protein at the first and last meals of the day respectively but I would just nudge people into trying to distribute protein intake quite evenly across three to five meals and or snacks per day. Because in many countries in the West, and this is true of both North America and the UK, people tend to consume very little protein at breakfast, a moderate amount at lunch and lots at dinner. Maybe you have cereal at breakfast and then you have a sandwich at lunch. And then at dinner, you finally have some steak and some potatoes. Yeah. There's a really easy win to be had by just adding a substantial amount of protein to your breakfast. There's loads of research showing that high protein breakfast reduces total energy intake in the remainder of the day. It improves glycemic control. So it reduces blood sugar swings the rest of the day. There are all sorts of benefits to be had. And so I think being practical, aiming for a roughly palm-sized portion of protein protein rich food at each meal is a good way to go i say roughly palm size the the magic number is probably something like 0.4 to 0.6 grams of protein per kilogram of body weight per meal but that's just gobbledygook to a lot of people and so i think being practical <laughs> rough, roughly palm size that that tends to work quite well
0: on that protein uh can you would you recommend like is a whey protein powder okay in the morning or or would you uh you know want somebody to have like a a food like a you know f- actual food or or something like that um in the morning now i know whey protein again it's just it's a good source of protein i just i'm wondering from like a
1: appetite um and hunger standpoint sure whey whey is great and interestingly a lot of the research that's looked at manipulating first meal protein intake has used whey specifically So I'm by no means anti-protein powder. I think the quality of protein powders has got better over time. The supplement industry is a bit better regulated than it used to be. Some people have concerns about whey either because it might contain small amounts of lactose and for some people that can cause some digestive disturbances or because some people are concerned about the environment or maybe they're consuming plant-based diets for ethical reasons. In that case that's absolutely fine you can use a plant-based protein powder if you prefer and i think again the balance of amino acids and the digestibility of those products has got better and those are both going to affect how your body responds to those proteins particularly in terms of your ability to knit together a new muscle tissue so yeah i think whether you want to have your protein bolus from a whey protein drink or maybe as part of a smoothie or eggs or fish whatever it, it all counts. Awesome,
0: um, and, and a couple things on this. So I, I think again with all this, it, it, I, I wanted to bring this up because I am really intrigued by a lot of the research lately on time restricted uh, eating. Just from like you said, you know, from the circadian rhythm standpoint, you know, just being more efficient, you know, throughout the day, um, and then also just it in the research showing that like people without like you know tracking and whatnot, they they do find that people will eat less overall. So I think it can be a great tool that to add in, but I I always want to, and I know you probably feel the same way. I just always want to kind of the the caveat is like, I'm sure that again, that's important, but your overall energy intake for the day is probably going to play a bigger role in all this, right? Where it's like, again, if you don't control for that in some way, um, again, it can indirectly help that. But again, if you're still consuming loads of calories throughout the day and your energy balance is out of whack, this is probably going to take a little bit of a backseat to that.
1: Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I think people have probably focused too much on meal timing recently. Something I posted about on Instagram briefly, but it's quite common now to hear people say things like when you eat is more important than what you eat. And some of my PhD work focused on chrononutrition. And I just think that's nonsense. I, I don't think it's helpful because when you eat and what you eat both matter and they matter for different reasons and for different things. So for example, you might find that when you eat is really important for the function of those peripheral clocks that I mentioned previously, and maybe it's relatively more important than what you eat, although it'd be very difficult trying to actually operationalize that. However, what you eat is going to be really important for things like your nutrient status. If you're consuming a diet that's deficient in magnesium, then optimizing your diet timing just isn't really going to matter. You need to consume more magnesium. And so you should try and address both of those things. And one point I'll make relates to what you said, Jeff, is that for a lot of people, they're going to be trying to reduce their food intake. And time-restricted eating tends to have that effect on people, which is great. However, there are some people that really struggle with controlling their food intake. And I'm just thinking about the fact that you're very interested In resistance training, and I suspect that some people listening to this might be very interested in that too, and very interested in their body composition. And many of those people might have experienced either disordered eating or have had a a frank eating disorder. And I, I do wonder about whether time restricted eating might be contraindicated for people with conditions such as binge eating, because it could be that this is this is just Putting fuel on the fire of the binge purge cycle, such that they go a long time trying to purge, maybe they're hyperactive during those times and they're not eating anything. And then they're implementing these really short eating windows in which they're consuming enormous volumes of food in very short periods. And maybe they're combining that with some other purging mechanisms. So I just think for people who are who are prone to some suboptimal attitudes to eating or who who have eating disorders when i say attitudes to eating i'm just thinking of people who are overly neurotic about these things i think <sighs> that might take the form of something like a, a condition in which people become overly obsessed about doing things as healthily as possible or mm-hmm. orthorexia yeah And for someone who has orthorexia, I I don't know that trying to micromanage diet timing is something that they should be doing. I think they should be trying to establish or reestablish a a more healthy relationship with how they think about their health. So I'll pause there, but just adding that just because I'm aware of some of the people who might be listening to this.
0: Yeah, no, that's uh, again, another good point there, right? Like uh, like you said, there's uh, there can be a point to where you overdo all these things, right? And it's like, okay, you're just, you're trying to focus on all these small things. And it's like, is that, is that taking a toll on your, you know, kind of like mental health, I guess, in a way too. And that's not going to be great for, from an overall health standpoint. One, one thing too, uh, that I would maybe like you to hit on just real quick is like, you know, a lot of people think of like the the time on the clock, right? Where it's like, oh, okay. So I can only eat from like seven to three, or like, I have to cut off eating at like six o'clock, right? Where it's like, you need to take into consideration your kind of like deal your your day-to-day right like that's going to play a role in that as well too
1: absolutely i I mentioned a word chronotype earlier and that just describes where you sit on the bell curve. people of your age and your biological sex in terms of your preferred sleep timing some people are very larkish they're real early birds they might be 30 years old but they might be wide awake at 5 a.m naturally and other people are very owlish they're the same age and they're still not sleepy at 2 a.m. in the morning after being up for the previous 12 hours. So rather than thinking about things relative to the social clock time, or your local time zone, you should always think about your diet timing relative to your sleep wake cycle. And that's why I mentioned earlier that I think about early time restricted eating as being finishing your final calories of the day, at least five hours before your sleep onset. And obviously things like shift work throw spanners in the works here but if we think about somebody who's not a shift worker uh, who sleeps roughly in accordance with their body's clock so they go to bed when they feel sleepy and they wake up when hopefully they're well rested in the morning think about it relative to your sleep and if you have to wake to an alarm then i would think about the timing of your first meal relative to when you would think you wouldn't actually wake up And so I typically tell people to avoid calorie intake, certainly in the first hour before waking. Two reasons for that. Maybe the most important of those is that shortly before you wake in the morning, there's a large spike in cortisol synthesis. And that's to mobilize energy reserves, increase your blood pressure, boost your arousal for the day ahead. But cortisol tends to interfere with your ability to regulate your blood sugar there's also the potential for melatonin levels in your blood to still be somewhat elevated the relevance of that is that melatonin reduces glucose stimulated insulin secretion which makes sense overnight because if you think about the fact that while you're asleep you don't have food coming in which could otherwise cause your blood sugar levels to drop too low melatonin that's being synthesized while you're asleep can help nudge up your blood sugar levels Then it can help you control your blood sugar at a stable level overnight however if when you wake in the morning you've still got a slightly elevated melatonin concentration in your blood then again maybe that's going to worsen your glucose control at that first meal so say wait at least an hour after you wake or after you naturally wake up in the morning for your first calorie intake of the day and then at the end of the day i think across the board i wouldn't recommend people consume any calories within about two hours of sleep onset regardless of whether you're doing time-restricted eating or not there there might be research that comes out that changed my mind about that so (laughs) there's been the practice in the bodybuilding community of if they wake up in the middle of the night maybe nailing a, a protein shake because it's another opportunity to boost muscle protein synthesis and muscle protein balance i wouldn't recommend that though just because i think it's it's fair to personify your organs and say that things like your your digestive system your pancreas are actually sleeping at that time and so it's it's good to give your organs a break for various different reasons we haven't got into but those include things like just recycling dysfunctional cellular structures that overnight fasting period does seem to help with that and so you've got to give your body a chance to cleanse itself speaking very simplistic terms
0: yeah. And the, I like that you, the, the body, the person waking up in the middle of the night, probably not great. You you don't, you don't need to, to, to do that, but you talked about like, you know, like you said, cutting off food, like a couple hours before bed that for me, again, anecdotally is one that, you know, when I look back, you know, in my years when I wasn't really focused on sleep and even when I've, you know, now I'm more aware of it and I've maybe had to, eat something a little bit later i can definitely see how that that impacts i think my digestive system and just sleep in general um when i eat you know too close to bed and i think food choice is obviously going to play a role in that as well too but um that's one that i've noticed it definitely plays a a big role um in in terms of like sleep quality and like waking up in the middle of night and things like
1: that yeah and that hasn't been well studied i think the most relevant study that comes to mind was by a guy named jonathan jun a few years ago and they compared people's responses to having their final meal five hours before sleep to having the same meal one hour before sleep. and They basically found that sleep architecture didn't change, interestingly, and they used polysomnography, which is the gold standard way of assessing sleep. But they did find that the later meal condition led to larger post-meal swings in blood sugar and higher cortisol levels too during sleep. And while there weren't those polysomnographic changes in sleep, I think many people subjectively feel they sleep better with an earlier dinner. And some of the time-restricted eating research bears that out too. Certainly, there's no evidence suggesting that the closer that you can eat to when you fall asleep, the better for your sleep quality. All of the research either shows no effects or some small positive effects on sleep quality from having an earlier dinner.
0: Cool. So, uh, I just, I want to be respectful of your time. We're, we're a little over here. So, so two questions. So, um, first is, and this was one that I wanted to go over earlier. So just, you can answer this as short as as you want. So with that rower in that situation, I'm curious, do you have them maybe go, uh, into their race at a little bit of a higher body fat level, um, than you would have for somebody else? Um, and then lastly, um, just to end the, the episode, just, anywhere where uh, if there's anything coming up that you want to lead the audience to and or um, where they can find you.
1: Awesome. So regarding the rowers, yes, absolutely. And and that is typically how people will approach these types of events. They'll try and gain a substantial amount of weight. And interestingly, we spoke briefly about resilient nutrition earlier. Resilient nutrition was really born of some work that my founders and I did with two guys who were rowing the Atlantic. Max Thorpe and Dave Spellman. And they went on to break the world record after we worked with them. And they used prototypes of our first products while they did that. But we don't take any credit for the fact that they accomplished that. But if you look at their strategy going into the race, then it was basically to get as big and as strong as possible. And in particular to increase their body mass and improve their strength, endurance in certain exercises. So they were doing things like quite high rep Romanian deadlifts with a lot of weight. And they both gained over 10 kilos in preparation for the event. And they both lost, I don't recall exactly how much weight, but roughly 20 kilos during the event, which is which is quite typical. Yeah, that's I think slightly greater than average, but many people will actually lose a little bit more weight than that, and others will lose a bit less. So yes, they absolutely need to, to bulk up first. And then in terms of where people can find me online, website is gregpotterphd.com and I'm at gregpotterphd on social media, which is primarily Instagram. I am also on Twitter. God forbid I'm on TikTok where I think I've got about two followers, which I'm <laughs> I'm chuffed to bits about. I highlight my career. <laughs> I love
0: it. Uh yeah, it's just super interesting stuff there on that. I I I figured it would be something where again, you probably don't want them to gain a ton of weight and body fat beforehand, but definitely making sure they they do put on some weight heading into that I think would be beneficial. Um so really interesting stuff, Greg. Uh took a nice little side tangent there. So uh, at the beginning, um really good episode, a ton of great information in here. Um and I'm with you on TikTok. I actually don't even have a TikTok and I'm not sure if I'm ever going to uh, get one, but we'll we'll see on that. So
1: Well, I think that's smart. <laughs>
0: All right, man. Well, again, appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on and we'll talk to you next time. Great. Thanks, Jeff. Thank you for listening. If you want more free content like this, follow me on Instagram at JeffH91 underscore or visit JHHealth.net. See you next time.